0: Good morning. It's, what, Jimmy, why would you call it? The weird Sunday before Thanksgiving? And it really is. We've, oh, we've entered the part of the year that seems to move way too fast. That we, We're almost officially to the holidays. And so it's all a blur from here. So in your blurry sprint towards 2021, thank you for finding time to be with us this morning it's a it's a joy and an honor to be with you Uh, so this morning the the lectionary has brought us to the book of ephesians hold on a second let me fix this somehow because that is obnoxious there we go ha and anytime we look at a letter written to ephesus uh, which may be an epistle from paul like the one we're about to read or an oracle from john like robbie did so well for us earlier it's important to have context for uh, what sort of a place Ephesus was. Ephesus was an important city in the ancient world, sort of a Roman proxy capital in the east, the largest and most prosperous city in the region of Asia Minor. The city was uh, full of people that subscribed to this idea, this legend that the church had been founded by the Amazonian warriors of mythology. I know, right? Like Wonder Woman, yeah. They thought Wonder Woman founded their city. Uh, so they're very proud. They were uh, very patriotic about their city. A- and it was home to the great temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A- and it was a place where commerce and religion really met a global destination for sales and pagan worship. A radically pluralistic place where you could encounter any kind of philosophy, worldview, or belief system. I, I tell you all this because I want you to understand that Ephesus was not unlike the world we live in today. And it was also a place that Paul, the the writer of today's passage, a place that he loved. Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus, as much as three years on one of his missionary journeys. And now, years later, Paul is writing this letter to this church from a Roman prison, a letter to a community that he helped start and, and one that he poured years into nurturing And now he has been gone for a long time, sitting in prison, waiting for what very well may be the sentence of death. And and Paul hears stories, stories about the church that he loves, a, a church that has outgrown him, really, a church that has taken what he gave them and they've ran with it. In the harsh environment of Ephesus, the church has thrived. It has grown and spread. And Paul responds to this news, to these stories, with a letter. So let's take a look at how he responds and see if we can learn something from it. Uh, this chapter one of this letter is only five sentences long. Fair warning, this is going to be some of the most Bible-y Bible bible you have ever heard. So try not to zone out, don't let your eyes glaze over, at the religiosity of the language. Remember, this was all New once. so try to try to enjoy it try to bask in it, take it in savor the beauty uh, of the words of this prayer that Paul offers for these people and we will try to unpack some of it together and see what the spirit might have to say to us today. so let's get to work. give me the first sentence of this letter five sentences in this chapter. Uh, first sentence Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus the faithful in Christ easy enough. That's a great way to start a letter. Uh, Sentence number two, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a really rich greeting. The the youth recently uh, did a deep dive in what these words themselves mean, but once again, pretty straightforward for how Paul starts a letter. So let's go ahead and jump to sentence number three. Whoa, yeah. That is the third sentence. All of that. In Greek, we've had punctuation in the English just so you can kind of read it. But in the Greek, that is one sentence. And no, that's not normal. It's almost as if Paul, overwhelmed with what he's trying to communicate, loses all grasp of grammar and syntax and just goes for it. So let's read sentence three. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I told you this was gonna sound really churchy, but try to, don't zone out. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, still all one sentence, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, with the purpose in Christ, still one sentence, to be put into effect when the time reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we are also chosen. "...having been predestined according to his plan, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the posture of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth." The gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. To the praise of his glory, that was one sentence. <laughs> it's, that's a lot. all packed in there for one period and there's a whole lot in there. Paul prays for the church, and he gives it a few names in his prayer, like chosen, holy, adopted, an inheritance, God's possession, predestined. The first thing that pours out of Paul's heart, the first thing that boils over as he starts to pray for the church is the divine affirmation of God's love For his church. If you're familiar with the Old Testament some of these words should sound familiar. Holy, chosen, adopted, an inheritance, God's possession, predestined. These are terms that God uses for God's people and all throughout the Bible we see that God is in the business of choosing people. In Genesis 12, God explains, and I've got a a slide for for these. In Genesis 12, God explains to Abraham, the man God chooses to make a covenant with, that the purpose of this covenant will be to bless all the families of the earth. This is the promise that kicks off all redemptive history, a story of expansion, of, of aperture, of a constant and ever, that is constant and ever widening, until there is room for the whole of creation. And it starts with God choosing a person, a man, Abraham. This man and his family, and soon his family will expand. It becomes a tribe, a whole people unto themselves. And at Sinai, in the book of Exodus, God reaffirms that this covenant, this call, this choosing, extends not just to Abraham, but to all of his descendants, and that now they are called to be a holy nation, a chosen people, a, a nation with a mission of obedience and holiness and justice, a people who will show the world what God is like. And so the story continues and, and the language of adoption develops around God's people. The passages like, you are my son, Today I have become your father, from the Psalms and and passages like, Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, my daughter Jerusalem, from the prophets. And not only does God choose and adopt his people, he takes joy in them, he revels in them. In the prophets and places like Deuteronomy 32, we read things like, For the Lord's inheritance is his people, Jacob his allotted prize. And then there's this sticky word in there of predestined. The the word predestined has meant a lot of things to a lot of people. But I think the concept at play here in Ephesians is obscured by all the debate. I think what Paul is talking about here is not individual salvation as in God chose you to save and chooses others not to save, but rather that God has predestined the process of expansion. God has predestined the process of welcome and grace-filled mission as the means by which God would change the world that what has been predestined is God's plan to welcome more and more people in shocking ways into the family of faith. So it's not that God has predestined you to be saved, but rather, God has predestined the means by which you would be saved. And and Paul says that when you say yes to Jesus, when you choose to live under the reign of Jesus, you, you have and you have him as the Lord of your life, you become part of this family, you become part of the story, part of the way that God has chosen to redeem the world, part of the way that God has predestined to show the world what God is like. And so with all of that in mind, let's look at sentence four. He's done it again. All one sentence, one period for all that for this reason that is the the welcome of god and that that welcome has reached all the way to you for this reason ever since i heard about your faith in the lord jesus and for all god's people i have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers i keep asking that the god of our lord jesus the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation Seriously churchy language, but don't zone out. Hold on, stay in there. The wisdom of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but the age to come. That is quite a sentence. You should not write like Paul. But you might want to pray like Paul. Here's something to notice about the way Paul prays here. Notice that Paul's concept of prayer might be different than the way we think about it. What do I mean? Nowhere in that long prayer that we just heard does Paul mention their circumstances. When we talk about prayer, we say things like, she needs prayer, or pray for him, he's going through a lot. Uh, stuff like, pray for Miss Daisy, she has surgery next week, or pray for Marco, he has started. Applying to colleges. When we share prayer requests, we often talk about situations or circumstances in which we want God to intervene. And that's good. We need to do that. We we are told to do that. We should do that. We ought to pray for each other in times of crisis and struggle. But that is not what Paul is doing here. I am 100% sure that the Christians in Ephesus needed prayer for their problems. They are under political, religious, social, social and economic pressures to abandon the gospel. I'm sure that some of them are sick. I'm sure some of them are in prison. Some of them are in need. But here, Paul does not pray for any of that. In fact, he does almost the complete opposite. Paul doesn't say, I heard you're doing poorly. I need to pray for you. Paul says, I heard that you are doing awesome and I need to pray for you. While prayer can be a remedy, it can also be rocket fuel. Paul prays for three things to be unleashed in the Ephesian church. First, He prays that the believers would fall deeper in love with Jesus. That they would gain, here's some of those uh, churchy words, they would gain revelation, knowledge, insight, and greater relationship with him. The words he uses are the spirit of wisdom and revelation. But we could also present those ideas as creativity and discovery. It's, It's like he says... I pray that your relationship with Jesus would be characterized by creativity and discovery. Earlier in the service, Robbie read from Revelation, where Jesus' command to this community of believers was to get back to being in love with him, to not let the work of church or the grind of daily life consume you, but rather to reclaim your first love, to get back to that passion, that zeal that you had when you first heard the gospel. Paul's prayer here is the same as John's command. Get deeper into Jesus. Set your spirit and your mind to work on creativity and discovery, and you will fall deeper in love with your savior. The second thing, number two, that Paul prays for is that they would become a people of hope. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Here is that Old Testament language again of invitation, of welcome, of belonging. It's back. Paul prays that the church would live into the hope that their calling affords them. What would that be? Well, I'm going to steal a quote from someone else. Reverend Tim Mackey of the Bible Project defines hope as the deep conviction that our present circumstances do not determine the meaning of our life. If you're a note taker, you want to write that down. The deep conviction Conviction that our present circumstances don't determine the meaning of our life. Whatever is going on in the world, in politics, in your finances, in your relationships, your career, your health, whatever, those circumstances don't get to determine the meaning of your life. And this is what Paul reminds us of here that meaning, that purpose, that calling, that hope for the Christian comes from knowing your place in the redemptive narrative of God. And your role is, from earlier, remember these words, chosen, holy, adopted, inherited, God's prized possession, predestined to be part of the story. How different would our lives be if we lived with this as our primary identity? How would we be different if this was the meaning of our life. If our central way of thinking about ourselves was chosen, holy, predestined, adopted, God's prized possession. Paul prays that we would find our identity in the love of God and our purpose in the story of the gospel. And three, finally, the third thing that Paul prays for is power. Now to me, that feels weird the the word power kind of especially when we've been so politically minded for the last year the word power feels kind of slimy I don't, I don't like the way it tastes in my mouth especially if we say things like I pray that God would give you power that feels televangelic or something I don't like it it feels out of place in uh, the story of love But before you roll your eyes and zone out, give me a second to explain what Paul might mean. So let's listen to that phrase he used again. Verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul prays that you would come to live in the knowledge of the fact that when you said yes to Jesus, you said yes to resurrection power being turned loose in your life. If you let Jesus in, he's going to bring resurrection with him. If you let Jesus in, he's going to bring resurrection with him because that is what he does The power of God, the power that Paul is talking about here, is the power to take utter defeat and transform it into triumph. It's the creative power that we see poetically displayed in Genesis when God transforms formless darkness into ecstatic beauty. It's the power that called Jesus out of the grave and transformed death into life and it has not stopped. God is still acting in this power. God is still working with this power. And the invitation, the calling that God has for us here is to join in that work of reconcil- in reconciling the whole of creation to himself. When we step into the Jesus way of living, when we embrace the Christian life, the hope of resurrection is unleashed in our lives. And not just in some esoteric hope for the future, though that is a beautiful promise as well, but what Paul wants us to embrace is that the power of creation and the power of resurrection is available to change us now. That the new creation is, is a present reality. And the resurrection power of Jesus is just waiting to bring life out of the dead places in our lives today. Paul ends this fourth sentence saying that this power is for the age to come. That's a good churchy word, the age to come. But also for this present moment, life, full life, resurrection life, recreated life, second chance life, creativity and beauty, revelation and discovery, that kind of life, called and chosen life, purposeful life, powerful, hope-filled Jesus life is available now through relationship with Jesus. The one who, as Paul says in the fifth and last sentence of chapter one, available through Jesus, who fulfills everything in every way. Amen.